1: The historian Adam Tooze traces the moment America became the world's greatest economic power back to World War I. By financing the war against Germany, the United States emerged quite suddenly as a novel kind of superstate. he writes. After more than a century of preeminence, the persistence of extreme poverty in America is puzzling. In the last recession, the share of Americans classified as poor jumped from 12 to 17 percent, more than most European countries. But the 2007 crisis pales into insignificance next to the economic shock America is experiencing now amid the coronavirus pandemic. With 115 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prudeau, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, has the coronavirus changed the politics of poverty? Congress is debating whether to extend federal aid for people out of work beyond the end of the month. Employment numbers bounced back in June, but there are still 10 million more jobless than there were before COVID hit America, and reopening has stalled as the virus spreads. Meanwhile, there's evidence poverty levels have been falling thanks to the stimulus. How might these emergency interventions influence a longer-term anti-poverty strategy? In this episode, we'll find out which president came closest to introducing a universal basic income and the best ways to fight poverty while also addressing racial inequality. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. Charlotte, how are you doing? How was the freeze dancing?
2: The freeze dancing was great. We did freeze dancing, we did relay races, the kids had a great time with their cousins... No adults slipped a disc. Success. It was successful.
1: After my failure to recognize freeze dancing in last week's podcast, various people tweeted at me saying that it's called musical statues in the UK. And, and of course it is. And we all used to play at kid's <laughs> parties. So I'm, I'm sorry for leaving you hanging last week. And
3: John, how about you? How was your fourth? Did you manage to set off some satisfactory explosions in your backyard? We set off some fairly minor ones. We didn't do the major we for saving those for later when we are not living in eight acres of dry forest. But even the minor ones we set off were very satisfying. That sounds alarmingly grown up. Okay, let's get into this week's topic. One
1: of the more astonishing facts in this week's Economist is that 2 million American households have trouble finding enough to eat. 20% of African American households with children are now in this position. Those numbers are in a piece by Callum Williams, our economics correspondent, on the impact of the CARES Act, which is the stimulus package that Congress passed in
4: March to alleviate the impact of the coronavirus. Normally, during a recession, poverty goes up, because, basically because unemployment goes up. But the scale of the fiscal stimulus in the past few months has been really astonishing. If you, if you basically add up every American family's household income in 2020 it's forecast to rise this year by about as much as it rose last year when the economy was steaming ahead. So households are receiving a really large amount of money from the federal government. And because of the way in which the stimulus has been designed, what you often find is that the people who are normally on the very, very lowest incomes are actually getting quite a lot of money. And so what you can see in the data, um, there's a new paper that's come out from a few academics, it shows that on a monthly basis, poverty has fallen since the CARES Act was implemented.
1: Okay, and a lot of that stimulus, Callum, is due to run out at the end of July. It did look like Republicans in the Senate might be happy to let it expire. But now that coronavirus is spreading so fast throughout the country, it seems more likely that some kind of deal will eventually be done in Congress. Put aside what's going to happen, what do you think ought to happen? Should Congress just ideally extend the unemployment insurance top-ups and send more checks to American households? You know, there are some people who argue on the other side of that debate that you need to worry about incentives
4: to work as the economy recovers. What, what do you think Congress ought to do here? It seems to me that if the path of the virus now looks similar in places like Florida and uh, Arizona and so on to how it did in New York three months ago. I think it stands to reason that the policy response should be fairly similar. I think it would be a good idea to extend the more generous unemployment benefits. I think it would be also a good idea to extend the time during which people are allowed to claim unemployment benefits. There is a question about the level of those benefits. I don't think it is yet a concern among economists that unemployment benefit is too generous to uh, and is discouraging work. There's there's not really that much evidence of of that being the case. Having said that, you always do need to trade off these two difficult questions of providing people with an adequate income and also ensuring that the economy can recover. So I think what perhaps might be the middle ground here is to have a slightly lower level of the unemployment benefit, but to ensure that it extends for a lot longer.
1: Callum, does the fact that poverty seems to have fallen at a time when the economy is effectively in recession because the government has taken a, such an activist response. I mean, does that give clues as to what could be done more broadly if you had a president and a congress that was sort of determined to use the might of the federal government, the taxing and spending powers of the federal government to really make a big push on poverty reduction?
4: Yeah, that's a super interesting question. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about the US Welfare system, and this contrasts really sharply with, say, how it works in Northern Europe, is that the idea of the welfare system in America is to get people off it as soon as possible. And so what that means is that welfare tends to be extremely uh, difficult to live on. Payments are very, very low. And people tend to take the first job that comes along simply because living on welfare is extremely bad. And very, very tough. And that's one reason why you have such high poverty levels. I think if there were to be a government that came to Washington and wanted to do something about that, the idea of giving workers a bit more of an outside option, which means making unemployment insurance and other forms of -of out-of-work benefits somewhat more generous is, uh, I think, something that should be considered. At the same time, though, I think you'd have to do a lot more on ensuring that people were being given the kind of appropriate training that they might need when they were out of work. That's something that a lot of Northern European countries do pretty well. So it's it's not simply a question of making welfare more generous, it's a question of making it more generous and also doing more to help workers to sort of retrain and up their skills.
1: All right, so before we get into what Congress is going to do and what it ought to do. Charlotte, just paint a picture for us. What happened to the US economy in June?
2: It's interesting. So in March and April, of course, there was this huge contraction of the economy. And then in June, it was kind of a weird month because there was the biggest uptick in hiring on record. There was 4.8 million jobs that were added. But at the same time, you saw COVID cases rising across much of the South and Southwest. And so you have this macro number of the 4.8 million number of jobs added, but also there are other statistics which suggest that we can't count on a fast economic recovery. I was interested, the American Enterprise Institute was looking at some data And they noted that foot traffic to shops, for instance, was sinking in Houston, Orlando, Phoenix, some of the other cities where infections were rising really quickly. So June was kind of a strange month. I'm very interested to see the data when it comes out for July because you do have this record number of cases now in the United States and people are limiting how often they're going to shops, how often they're eating out. The reopening feels very precarious. So I think that that may have an effect on jobs. And that certainly does inform this debate over what the next stimulus should look like.
1: And John, that question, what Congress is going to do, what the president will sign is now the biggest question in public policy in Washington. Congress is on recess
3: at the moment for a couple of weeks. They don't have a whole load of time to get a package together. What do you think is going to happen? Congress passed the CARES Act really quickly, and it was heartening, given how gridlocked Congress has been for so long, to see it pass quickly with minimal bickering. I expect we'll see some sort of stimulus passed again before the end of the month. The big debate, really, is whether that includes stabilizers or not, and a lot of Democrats would like to see stabilizers included. That means the stimulus continues until unemployment has returned to a certain level so that there isn't this huge expenditure of political capital every time another stimulus is needed. I think that probably won't happen, but we'll see some sort of money going out to some amount of people by the end of July, I would expect. Charlotte, I'm really intrigued by the politics of this, because if
1: you think back to the last big stimulus, which was part of the federal government's response to the financial crisis, that helped to give rise to the Tea Party, right? There was this big reaction on the right against the idea that the federal government was spending lots of taxpayers' money. This time, the politics of it seem completely different. I haven't noticed any kind of rebellion against Congress extending unemployment insurance or sending checks direct to American households. Is that just because there's a Republican in the White House and so the politics are different? Or is there something else going on here? You know, are Americans acquiring a taste for something more like a European welfare state here?
2: I think it's probably both, and I am inclined to say it has more to do with the current party in power than it has to do with a dramatic shift in Americans being comfortable with European-style welfare. But it is notable. I mean, the recent CARES Act was more than twice the size of the stimulus that followed the 2008 financial crisis. And so that's obviously a really big jump. Donald Trump, of course, wanted to have his name on the stimulus checks that were distributed to Americans. He very much wanted to be seen as helping the American people. So I really think that the president wanting to be a part of the stimulus had a big impact on neutering the political controversy around it.
3: I think Charlotte's absolutely right. The Tea Party's anger had a lot to do with the president who was then in power. It also had to do with there was an expansion of health care then as well. But I think it mostly had to do with the president who was in power. I would expect that the response to COVID becomes increasingly political and fraught as November gets closer. And I would think if we still need stimulus in January, and we have a Joe Biden who is in office, then I would expect to see the politics become much nastier than they are now.
1: Well, let's hope that the virus is in retreat by January and another round of stimulus isn't necessary then. Um, thank you both. Next, we'll find out which president came the closest to implementing a universal basic income. But first, the usual reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you really should be. Wherever you are, you'll get the best introductory offer at economist.com slash 2020 election pod. The cover story this week is a thought-provoking piece on race and liberalism. The China section has a great column on students studying in the US. There's more from Fasman on policing, a rich variety as always. That link for a special rate on a new subscription is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. You'll find it in the notes for this episode on your podcast app. Ambitious government programs to end poverty in America have been stuck on the political periphery since the 1960s. Many Americans
0: live on the outskirts of hope. Some because of their poverty and some because of their color and all too many because of both.
1: Lyndon Johnson was the last president to pass legislation that would really re-engineer society.
0: And this administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America.
1: His plan created programs still around today, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, Title I subsidies for impoverished school districts.
0: It will not be a short or easy struggle No single weapon or strategy will suffice, but we shall not rest until that war is won.
1: Johnson's campaign was striking in its ambition, but also notable for its bipartisan support. The Campaign HQ was the new Office of Economic Opportunity, established in 1964. When Richard Nixon won the presidency four years later, he persuaded a young congressman from Illinois to run it, a man named Donald Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld turned the office into a laboratory for experimental programs. One of the unknowns he hoped to get to know better was the efficacy of unconditional income supplements. The idea of a universal basic income has gained traction more recently, mostly among tech utopians and ultra-progressives, But it's startling how close Richard Nixon came to passing a version of it. Rumsfeld's recruitment also reflects how mainstream the policy seemed then. To help run a pilot project in New Jersey, he hired a congressional intern called Dick Cheney. Over a thousand families had their income topped up to find out if it had impacted their work ethic. It didn't, not much anyway. The men worked an hour less per week. Women reduced their workweek by five hours, but mothers spent more time with their children, whose grades improved. Four more tests were run across the country, with similar results. It felt like an idea whose time had come. John Kenneth Galbraith and another 1,200 economists wrote an open letter to Congress supporting a guaranteed income. Costs, they said, would be substantial, but well within the nation's economic and fiscal capacity. President Nixon was surfing a wave of popularity after vowing to get America out of Vietnam and to desegregate schools. Elvis Presley dropped in on the White House in a purple velvet suit. Tricky Dicky saw his chance to be remembered as a popular reformer. And so,
0: let us place a floor under the income of every family with children in America. And without those demeaning, soul-stifling affronts to human dignity that so blight the lives of welfare children today,
1: His family assistance plan would provide a guaranteed annual income of $500 for every adult and $300 for every child, whether the parents worked or not. The plan passed the House with bipartisan support, but conservative Democrats and Republicans in the Senate started to pull it apart. Russell Long of Louisiana worried the poor would get picky about the jobs they took. I can't get anybody to iron my shirts, he complained in a committee hearing. Racial prejudice no doubt played a part in Long's opposition, but the plan wasn't designed to help African Americans. On the contrary, it was part of the Nixon administration's appeal to the silent majority, white, low-income workers who'd been excluded from welfare. Senator Long proposed an alternative, the Earned Income Tax Credit. While Nixon's plan founded, the EITC was enacted three years later and remains to this day. The assumption behind it, that the poor need incentives to make them work, shrank the vision shared by LBJ and Nixon and entrenched a view of welfare contradicted by the results of Donald Rumsfeld's experiments. The distinction between the deserving and undeserving poor has reaped rewards for politicians of all stripes ever since. It was a Democrat who won the White House with a promise to unravel universal benefits 30 years later.
0: I have a plan to end welfare as we know it, to break the cycle of welfare dependency. We'll provide education, job training, and childcare. But then those who are able must go to work.
3: It's a plan to put people first again. And six Nobel Prize economists say it'll work. But don't take their word, read it yourself. For people, for a change. Bill Clinton for president. So, John
1: Fassman, universal basic income has gone from being an idea apparently favoured by Nixon, by Dick Cheney, by Donald Rumsfeld, to being the preserve of Andrew Yang's democratic primary bid and a lot of Silicon Valley folks who worry about robots taking all of our jobs away. How did that happen?
3: Well, it sort of parallels what happened with healthcare, right? Particularly with the way the Affordable Care Act was designed, which was a... Republican design program in Massachusetts that a Democratic president implemented and suddenly became the preserve of the left. With UBI, you have, as you mentioned, Andrew Yang ran on it. You also have a couple of mayors who have embarked on UBI programs. One of them is Raz Baraka in Newark, who also has a by invitation piece in our pages this week about policing. The first one was Michael Tubbs in Stockton, California. And since early 19... There are a group of 130 residents in Stockton who make below the city's median income who be getting $500 a month with no strings attached. And it's a sort of real life experiment in what UBI can do for people. And it's interesting to me that it has bubbled up from the city level rather than as a national program. It suggests that the laboratories of democracy are in fact doing what the laboratories of democracy should do, which is hypothesizing and testing.
2: I think also if you look at the way that different presidents have talked about personal responsibility, the idea that an individual is responsible for his or her own success in life and that in America any individual can succeed if you try hard enough is very much tied up in some people's idea of what America is. And Ronald Reagan, one of the Quotes from his presidency that people bring up again and again is he said, We must reject the idea that every time a law is broken, society is guilty rather than the lawbreaker. It's time to restore the American precept that each individual is accountable for his actions. And that, of course, referred to breaking the law. But Bill Clinton was among those who really wanted to promote this idea of individual responsibility. And that tension between individual responsibility and the role of the state in supporting individuals is one of the big debates in American politics, and it takes different shapes over time. But you see that running as a thread back through the 80s through today.
1: John, if you talk to people who were involved in those Clinton welfare reforms in the mid-90s, people like Isabel Sawhill, who's now at Brookings, they would say to you that actually welfare had become so unpopular and so associated with kind of welfare queens and moochers after a lot of campaigning by Ronald Reagan and and others on the subject in the 80s, that really those welfare reforms that are now criticised by a lot of people on the left, those welfare reforms that were pushed by a democratic president, were designed to
3: save welfare rather than to sweep it away, as many now charge. I think there's probably some truth to that, that welfare had become a sort of political football in a way that it wasn't when Johnson and Nixon were in office. And what you're seeing now is a turning away from that sort of Reaganism, right? The economy is becoming much more sort of based around contingent and gig jobs. People are having a hard time making ends meet through no fault of their own. And so I think you're seeing a return to support for a more activist government. And one way that government can be active in combating poverty is just giving people money. Okay, thank you both. We'll discuss the best ways to fight poverty
1: while also addressing racial inequality in a moment. We've spoken a good deal in previous episodes about the moment of racial reckoning that America's going through right now. The cover of this week's Economist magazine picks up on this, and we can't talk about poverty in the US without talking about race. Our policy correspondent, Idris Kaloun, has written a briefing this week on the best ways to address the economic dimension of racial inequality. In
5: 1968, the typical black family made about 60% of what the typical white family did. And they had wealth that was about one-tenth of the typical white family. Today, those rates are the exact same. Black families still make 60% of what white families do. They still have assets that are one-tenth of what white families have. The reasons why are, as you can imagine, quite complicated. So there were these programs like the Fair Housing Act. There were poverty reduction programs passed as part of the Great Society that had an impact. You can measure housing discrimination. You can see that it's gone down. You can measure what black poverty rates look like in the 1960s and what they look like now when they've gone down. But these wealth gaps and these income gaps persist. And the reason for that is there are a couple different things. One is that uh, discrimination still exists to this day in terms of when we study callbacks. So when researchers send resumes for white and black uh, people, even modern times, they find that black applicants have almost a 50% less chance of getting called back even with identical resumes. There is the basic fact that if you start at a at a lower initial position, even if you have equal opportunity from there on, it's going to take a couple of generations for you to catch up. You have the fact that mass incarceration takes off over this time. It didn't really exist before. Incarceration rates for black men triple over this time period. You have the fact that black neighborhoods and schools still remain intensely segregated. If you have black families that for generations have been living in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty, that conveys all sorts of disadvantages to their children, and that limits the ability for future generations to catch up. And that, I think, leads us to our present moment of, uh, of stagnation in a lot of respects.
1: Idris, because the causes of racial gaps in income and in wealth are so great trying to fix those gaps is a really complex endeavour. And there are various people who have kind of simple solutions, which to my mind at least seem to fall short. What are some things that would work? You've written this piece in this week's Economist, which is slanted towards a series of policies that are both achievable, as in it's possible to imagine them getting through Congress and would have a significant effect. What are the kind of main ones that you'd single out there?
5: So I think it's important to acknowledge, right, there is no silver bullet for these disparities. There's a Gordian knot of disadvantage, and there's no sword that Alexander will wield that will sort of cut it all um, into pieces. So there are a couple of ways to look at it, right? So on criminal justice, people have identified the problems that need to be fixed, things like qualified immunity, a lack of de-escalation training, On things like housing segregation, which persists and which drives a lot of the problems like differential exposure to violence and and poor schooling and, and everything else, the fact that cities remain artificially costly because of zoning rules limits the ability for Black families to move to better neighborhoods. The fact that we have housing subsidies that are inefficiently allocated, that don't actually move families out of poverty, I think is incredibly meaningful. If you look at school segregation... I think a lot of that follows on from the housing segregation front. So if you do a lot of work there, you can sort of fix what's going on in schooling segregation. And all the way down the line, if you look at just poverty itself, things like expanding the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit would do a substantial amount to reduce the amount of poverty experienced by poor children in this country. And on things like the racial wealth gap itself, Joe Biden has suggested down payment assistance for housing, which would um, you know help people acquire housing wealth people like Senator Cory Booker have suggested a baby bonds program that would basically set up a trust account for every single American child, uh, giving more towards those who are poor. These are all ideas that I think are pretty thoughtful and that I think don't fall into a clear partisan backlash as as some of the ideas that are being discussed now do.
1: All those ideas you mentioned, to put them in kind of three big buckets, there's you know, criminal justice reform, housing segregation, residential segregation, and the tax system, whether it be tax credits or baby bonds or what have you, all of those are not explicitly racial policies, right? There's a race neutral to some extent. Is that a strength or a weakness of them? I mean, some people might argue that if the problem you're trying to fix is racial wealth disparities, you should target your policies kind of more specifically. The policies you've laid out would I think, with luck, benefit all poor americans. so So, what's the reason for going at the problem that way?
5: I think race neutrality is a strength, and the reason for that is that these these dynamics that we've discussed, how concentrated poverty and segregated housing and schooling accumulates disadvantage in in children, applies to people of all races. It applies disproportionately. To black children, um, but it also applies to if you go to Eastern Kentucky and you see what's going on there. If you go to Native American reservations, you see the same dynamics at play. There are lots of, of, of people with lower opportunities in America and policies like these can help all of them, while at the same time disproportionately helping black families. The other reasoning behind uh, race neutral policies as opposed to race conscious ones, things like expanded affirmative action, or reparations uh, for the descendants of slaves, is it's a practical one. It's that in America, the history of welfare programs, safety net programs, that even those that are just means tested and race neutral, things like cash welfare, things even like Obamacare, were quickly made unpopular because of the perception among whites that they disproportionately helped black people in this country. When you look at the record on universal programs like Social Security and Medicare, uh, you don't see that that similarity of backlash. Those programs are something that feel very sacred to Americans at this point. And so it is an uncomfortable acknowledgement of the racial dynamics at play. But it's also a practical point that universal programs seem to be more popular in America than uh, means-tested ones. And means-tested ones tend to be more popular still than race-conscious ones that we've attempted such as affirmative action.
1: So, Charlotte, as we heard from Idris there, to some extent, universal benefits are more popular in America than benefits that seem to be targeted at particular groups. And welfare is particularly politically vulnerable when it's perceived to benefit minorities. Do you think the politics of poverty reduction in America are shifting. I mean, we've described in this podcast a long move from a much more activist federal government under Lyndon Johnson and even Nixon and his ideas for UBI. And then as part of the Reagan revolution, this idea that actually individual responsibility is much more important. Welfare became very unpopular in in, in the 80s to the point where Bill Clinton in the mid 90s almost had to run on abolishing welfare as, as we know it. Where are the politics now and what's possible, say, if Joe Biden were to win the presidency. And just imagine, well, even though that still looks like a bit of a stretch, Democrats won the House and, and the Senate. You know, Do you think the underlying politics of poverty reduction through an activist government have changed in America or, or, or not so much?
2: It's funny, when you look at the polling, there's always this question that goes back to the the Reagan one of individual responsibility, which is whether success has to do with luck and circumstance, or whether success has to do with talent and work ethic. And the truth, of course, is that it has to do with both. But not surprisingly, people who are very successful, the polling suggests, often attribute their own success to their effort and skill rather than any luck. But even then, the more affluent people with a family income of over $75,000, which is of course, not. we're not talking about the top 1% here. They're the highest share of people who think that poverty has more to do with a lack of personal effort. But even then, it's only 38%. And it is now a majority among the general population, including both Republicans and Democrats, who say that poverty has more to do with obstacles in life rather than having anything to do with work ethic. And Republicans have the lowest share who think that, who think that poverty has more to do with obstacles that people confront than work ethic at 55%. But that's still a majority. So I think that does suggest that there is this understanding that some help is required. And this conversation continues to gain steam. I think it will continue to do so through November. And so I wouldn't be surprised if Joe Biden is the president, that there is discussion of how best to expand the safety net
3: Yeah, I think one thing you saw in 2016 was just how small the constituency was for minimal government, even among Republicans. Donald Trump ran as a big government Republican against Ted Cruz and John Kasich, and he won handily. And so I think there are a couple of things going on. One is it's clear that there's an appetite for activist government among both Democrats and Republicans. The other thing to remember is that Reagan's anti-welfare push, that push for sort of minimal government Iranian benefits, always had a racial edge to it. You remember that famous interview with Lee Atwater in which he said, well, you start out shouting racial slurs, that doesn't work. Then you start talking about abstract things like busing and tax cuts and their policy that just happen to harm African-Americans more than whites. But that's how you build support for that sort of constituency. It's a much less white country now than it was 40 years ago. Trump is running a campaign that's basically based on explicit white racial grievance. He's behind in the polls. There just isn't an appetite, I don't think, for that sort of politics anymore, to the extent that there was before.
1: Well, one of the things that political scientists often say about American public opinion is that Americans are ideologically conservative and operationally liberal, by which they mean, if you ask people whether they want, tax cuts in a small government, they'll say yes. But then if you try and take away federal spending, they'll resist that very energetically. So it's possible that a lot of politicians for a long time sort of somewhat misread the mood of, of the American public and the appetite Americans had for a minimalist state. While we've been talking, John and Charlotte, the Supreme Court has handed down its decisions on the Trump tax return cases And the decisions are exactly as Steve Maisie predicted, both on the podcast and in print in The Economist. So the case that was brought on behalf of Congress has been shot down. But New York's district attorney, Cyrus Vance, is going to get his hands on Donald Trump's tax returns.
3: Yeah, and that doesn't mean, remember, that the public is going to see them. By law, they go to a grand jury and grand jury proceedings are secret. So unless they leak, and uh, if you want to leak, please send them to us. Unless they leak, we're not going to be able to see them.
1: Yeah, if anyone listening wants to send the president's tax returns our way, we will handle them with the utmost discretion. Before I let you two go, there's a quiz. The Economist's first lead story on Lyndon Johnson didn't appear until he actually became president after Kennedy was killed in 1963. Our correspondent noted he was in many ways the opposite of JFK. He was, quote, a mediocre orator, not a richly cultured man, the article says. His conversation is speckled with earthy colloquialisms. Unlike this podcast. More significantly, he was, quote, accomplished in the arts of blandishment and personal persuasion. What did Johnson say was the best part of being vice president?
2: Something about the food is what I would guess. Or the booze. Food or booze are my two guesses.
3: Yeah, I don't know. He gets to basically keep being a senator, which is what he was before. Maybe the best thing about it is that there wasn't much of a change for him. He was a great legislator. Maybe that was the best thing. He got to keep doing it.
1: I, like Charlotte, would have guessed it was somehow bourbon-related. But but in fact, LBJ said his favourite part of being vice president was doing people favours. LBJ insisted on walking to Kennedy's funeral against the advice of the Secret Service, who were understandably twitchy. The Secret Service took the job of protecting presidents in 1901, after William McKinley's assassination, Founded as part of the Treasury Department during the Civil War, what crime was the service originally set up to prevent? Counterfeiting.
2: Yeah, that sounds right.
1: It was counterfeiting. So you both get a point there. Actually, I think John gets more of a point because he was in there first. He
2: gets a point. He gets a point. Yeah.
1: You get a footnote,
3: Charlotte. One third of all (laughs) the money in circulation in the 1860s was fake I think they still do counterfeiting, right? They still are in charge of enforcing that law and investigating counterfeiting.
2: My favorite thing about the Secret Service are the nicknames that they give to the various members of the president's family. So Donald Trump in, is mogul. Um, my personal favorite is uh, Don Jr. is mountaineer, and Jared Kushner is mechanic.
1: All right, that's Ulf us. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks, John. Thank you. If you like the podcast, please tell people about it and leave us a rating and a review in the usual places. Michaela Cole is taking TV by storm at the moment, and she's the guest on the Economist Asks podcast this week. You can find it alongside all the podcasts on Economist Radio in your podcast app. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.